rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. I've got episode number two from a guest that we had on the podcast last year, Mr. David Dark. He is with me here in Nashville. We're still on Zoom, but we're still, but we are in the same city. Just a brief background for those of you who did not listen to the last podcast. David Dark is the Associate Professor of Religion and the Arts at Belmont University here in Nashville. He's also a writer. He's the author of several books, including The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, and several others. His blog is on Substack, and it's called Dark Matter. David, welcome again to the podcast. Very grateful to be with you. Well, lots has happened in the past, gosh, I don't know if it's been six, seven months. We were in the middle of covid In 2020, we've had an election. We've had something happen on January 6th. Something happened. (laughs) We've had a vaccine, multiple vaccines developed and out. And it seems as though we might be seeing some light on the other side. I've heard terms thrown around like post-COVID. I don't think we're there yet. But it does feel here we are at the beginning of April in 2021, uh, a little bit more hopeful on certain things moving forward, depending on where you are and where you stand on a lot of those yes. issues. But I think it's important. It was really important for me to get back in touch with you because, David, number one, I think you're one of the most interesting people to talk to with your background and the things you write about. Uh, and your perspective is very, very unique. But also, you have a lot to say about what's going on uh, in this world as someone who has come from a history of very conservative evangelicalism to coming to a point in your own life where you're now talking about addressing, engaging in, and seeing where some of those paths have led us, some of them good, but a lot of them not so good. So we're going to go down those roads a little bit. You recently participated in a online Facebook discussion around the around this. It was called An Unholy Union, White Supremacy, and American Evangelical Christianity. So I want to talk about that. But before we just jump into all these topics, how, how have you been the last six months or so? I've been, I have been awash in privilege, <laughs> I want to say, because I've been doing pretty great. No income. I mean, maybe sometimes I'm invited to speak places and I get money for that. And that hasn't happened in the last year. I mean, other than Zoom, I suppose. But other than that, as an educator tenured at Belmont, I've been okay because I've been able to keep going with my classes. The product that is higher education is still being offered and sold, and it's been pretty good. And I I like to throw around the word apocalypse to take it back from doomsday to its original meaning, which is an unveiling, a big, it is the revelation is apocalypse, and it is the eye opener. And the last year has been an apocalypse, 
in terms of thinking through, well, realizing that the folks that I see at Kroger who are working there before the COVID hit, they did not have paid sick leave. And I would not have realized that they didn't have paid sick leave if I hadn't followed the news. I believe it's the case that they do have paid sick leave now. And I think that's lovely. That's a righteous situation. I mentioned that as a local example of what the apocalypse has begun to afford Mm -hmm. us. And I hope that in Nashville and throughout the country and throughout the world, that we are good stewards of the moral seriousness that is available to us in a new way as a result of this pandemic. That's great. That's great. Your family doing well? Yes. My partner, Sarah Mason, is a librarian at J.T. Moore. Her work, J.T. Moore Middle School, her work has been different because it's involved providing tech, computers, laptops for students who are not able to come in. And that's been interesting, too, thinking about what public education is, what the promise of public education is. She's been very busy with that. She's also a potter and a musician. My kids have have been fully engaged with school. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been interesting, too, because we've had to slow the tape, dial it back and think hard about what a a full day can look like in the COVID era. Yeah, that's great. Well, since we've met on Zoom last time, we got really great response from the podcast. So I appreciate you doing that and coming back a second time. You've been doing a, a lot of things during this time, even though you haven't been able to speak in public. You know, I guess it was a live webinar that you did the other day called An Unholy Union, White Supremacy in American Evangelical Christianity. Mm -hmm. A lot of people talking about that, you know, people like Jamar Tisby and uh, many others who are really addressing white evangelical Christianity. And for those of us who came up in that environment, we are seeing, experiencing, watching a dichotomy in this country over the past few years that culminated on January 6th. And since then, with a new administration, continues to not heal, but it appears to continue to divide. And I want to talk a little bit about that today, because I think you have an interesting perspective. Not only do you teach religion and the arts at Belmont University, but you're involved in talking with other people of color, other flavors of of Christians and Christianity, and really the culture that we have today, you're deep into that and really thinking deeply. So I guess where I'd like to start is what is the one thing that you would summarize the past six months from leading up to the election, the election results, January 6th to, to where we are today? What would be the one thought that you would sum all, all that up? And I know that's a big question, yeah. but I know, I know you've, you, you think deeply about this. So yeah. what would you sum it up? How would you sum it up? I would say this, with words like evangelicalism and white and Christianity, I really want to slow the tape all the time on that. And so I will sum it up this way very, very slowly, and then I'll explain myself a little bit. The predominantly white church in America has a white supremacist terror problem, which is essentially a baptism problem. 
So I'm throwing that word baptism on there as a lifeline because baptism means that perfect love casts out all fear Hmm. and baptism means newness of life and the newness of life on offer from Jesus of Nazareth and the prophets is the gospel. And the first word of gospel of Jesus's gospel is repent. And to repent is very, very difficult. It's about as difficult as it gets. Repentance never feels good at the starting line, but there is no salvation without repentance. There is no home. And well, when I say salvation, I have all kinds of things in mind. I have mental health in mind. I have undivided life in mind. I have joy in mind because real joy is deep acknowledgement and deep responsibility and deep reckoning. And reckoning is also gospel. Because reckoning means we don't have to live within particular lies any longer. And I'll throw in one more. Reconciliation without reckoning is just marketing, Mm. is just branding. So this is not, there is no overnight sudden moment thing. I mean, there's lots of sudden moments, but just owning our own stuff owning the fact of our own silences when people have spoken hatefully of Chinese people or Asian people or people of color or whoever it is that we've put on the other side of some arbitrary line. Yeah, we have a lot to contend with and a lot of deferential fear to overcome Mm -hmm. in the way we discuss the news in our own lives. I'll quickly throw in, I, I just took my son who has something of an asthma thing going on. And just now in Tennessee, 16 and older, it's possible. So my son, my 16-year-old son, just got his first Pfizer vaccine. I'm 51, and I found myself wondering how many of the people that I've known in my five decades in Nashville believe that the vaccine is the mark of the beast Mm. or that it is the Antichrist. And I, I don't know because I'm not in deep conversation with most of those folks. But yeah, they, I, I, I know that there are people who think that getting vaccinated means giving up your salvation to a degree. That's the air we breathe in Middle Tennessee. And we have a lot of work to do. But to return to my early thing, it is a baptism catechism work because the legislators who have voted to make giving a bottle of water to someone waiting in line to vote, a crime, Mm. are the same kind of legislators that vote to make the Bible the official state book of Tennessee. And all of these legislators are parts of churches, and all of them have been taught. I mean, perhaps that's a generalization, but I don't think so. You can't exactly win public office in Tennessee without at least pretending to be Christian. So those churches and the congregants of those churches and the deacons and the elders and the pastors of those churches owe those members something in terms of their baptism and their catechism. 
and there's just, there's a lot of work to do. Mm. You know, you speak about faith and Christianity in the context of a much more cultural and communal and societal perspective. And I almost wonder, David, as someone who has grown and changed and, and, and radically, as, as you, I believe, changed and evolved in, in, in our belief systems, I almost feel like we're talking two different languages. When I talk to people that I know, people that I've grown up with, even family members at times, it, it can be that when we, the, the words have different meanings. I think a lot of that comes from, especially in America, comes with a very personalized, personal salvation rather than a communal, societal, and social salvation that, that we see played out in scripture and referred to. So I think that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But also too, one of the things that I've been pondering a lot lately, and it could have been you that I picked this up from, but I was reading something recently talking about for the first time in history, there's a larger percentage not going to church and, and and not attending church anymore than going to mm-hmm. church in this country. We've turned a corner and and, and so many of it is a, it is a younger generation and, and the terms deconstruction and the terms nuns and all these different terms for different people who have walked away from the church. Somebody said something interesting and I, and I want to hear your, your feedback on it is it's not that we didn't teach our children well, and this is coming from people inside the church, it's not that we didn't educate them about Christ or the gospel or Jesus. It's actually we taught them too well, meaning mm. what what they are seeing now and what as they compare it to the Jesus that they understood who was loving and kind and who talk who spoke about the least of these, who was inclusive does not represent at all what they see in daily life, in politics, being preached from the pulpit, being demonstrated many times in their homes. And so they don't want anything to do with that. They're okay with Jesus, but they're not okay with the church. And so it's not that they weren't taught well, it's actually they were taught well. And they're simply saying, um, Jesus I'm cool with, but the rest of this stuff, I, I don't see a connection. I know I just said a lot, but I'd love to hear your feedback on some of that. Yeah, I, I think that is exactly right. I am obsessive enough. I grew up in the Church of Christ about these words that when I went, when I tried to refer to a Sunday morning service as church, I was corrected because church is the community, is the people. So I was raised, and one could call this a conservative evangelical upbringing, if by conservative evangelical, we mean conserving the possibility of the gospel. Like that's conservative evangel. Evangel means Mm -hmm. gospel, the good news. So even with my own kids, I taught them to say, we're going to church building. Rather than, and it was obsessive and it was weird, and I may have to repent of that obsessiveness. But they said, We're going to church building because we always told them that the church is the people that we ate pizza with and watched a movie with on Friday night. 
or the folks we do ultimate Frisbee, go on walks, that kind of thing. It's not confined to the institution. But you're exactly right that they are walking away from the organizational enterprise that passes for church because they were taught well. They, they knew, and, and I'll, I'll say this, I am hearing from former students who are now in their 30s who are dismayed of what has become of their parents mm. who villainize Joe Biden and villainize Mike Pence mm. because Mike Pence failed, didn't have the courage. So they're looking at parents who taught them to memorize Bible verses who taught them about respecting each other's bodies, who warned them against sexual promiscuity. And they are looking at their parents who are now telling them that God's chosen is a verified white supremacist sexual predator hmm. who hosted a reality TV show and who rode the birther movement into the White House and commanded the United States military for four years. I, I just described some things that I think are almost too much to take unless we try to divide it up between, oh, well, you see, that's just politics, or that's just religion, or that's just entertainment. But as we see when we contemplate the 45th president of the United States, who ordered a domestic attack on the United States government, which was carried out on January 6th, where do we put all this? <laughs> where do we put Christian music? Where do we put Nashville, which in so many ways is like the postmodern Vatican of the prayer trade? Hmm. God talk is marketed to the tune of millions of dollars in our city and Franklin, all of Tennessee. And so my, the students, I hesitate to call people students. I kind of want to leave it to them to tell me whether or not they were my student. But the hundreds of people who have passed in my classroom over the last 20 years, I maintain relationships with a lot of them. Hmm. And they are not wandering away from their parents' churches because they hate God. They are leaving their parents' churches often because they love God and they don't want to be partnered with bigotry or white supremacy for one second longer. Hmm. So the idea that they are outraged or unreasonable or they've strayed from biblical truth, well, let's what do you mean by biblical truth? Because as it happens, Biblical values as a marketing term sometimes refers to white supremacist bigotry, even now. So we have to slow the tape. We got to think these things through. And yeah, I'm absolutely, absolutely with you on the idea that what they're doing is they're entering into moral adulthood very often. And they're exercising the self-respect that involves assuming responsibility for the world that you're living in and refusing to normalize the abusive behavior of their elders. The, the term, David, white supremacy is so loaded. Is there, because 
it it, it elicits a response that's very divided. Either hmm. you are on board and you understand it and you recognize it as a white person and say, yes, I am guilty of it. Or you push back pretty hard on it and say, yep. how dare you call me that? I'm not racist. I have lots of black friends. I am not a member of the KKK. I actually mm. stand for equal rights, but I do not see myself at all as a white supremacist. Mm. Is there a different phrase or word or way to speak about white supremacy that can open the conversation or maybe even on this podcast, explain to someone who might be listening, who has a visceral reaction to that phrase for whatever reason. And I know yeah. that that spectrum is pretty wide. Can you, can you just define what you mean by white supremacy? Yes. Let me say, I don't like it either. <laughs> you know, And let me say that it isn't until the last four years that I felt morally compelled to speak those words mm. as often as I do, as I started putting together my own past and my own complicity and mm. my own situatedness in Nashville. And as I started talking for real to more black people. Mm. And by that, the more I started asking questions. So I think the starting point can't well yeah so hmm. yeah i know i i would like to think that by acknowledging that the white supremacist myth is an idea that has hold of my brain and my life I, i'm not pointing trying not to point a finger unless i'm pointing the finger at myself i wrote a book called the gospel according to america and there were black authors in there quoted but i had an entire chapter about American novelists, and it was Thomas Pynchon and Faulkner and Hawthorne and Melville, white dudes. It wasn't until I had the opportunity to revise the book, The Possibility of America, it's called, that I realized how white that book was, really white. So here's kind of that, yeah, and we can throw in whiteness as well. Whiteness is an idea. This may upset some people, but I'm going to say this. There are no white people in the Bible. Hmm. Whiteness as a way of arranging resources, money, labor, is a relatively new idea. Arguably not a lot, not even a thousand years old. It is a way of doing business. It's a way of putting people in their place. And whiteness as a construct is actionable in the, the way that it has formed legislation. But it is a construct. It's a powerful myth, but it is a myth. James Baldwin, very helpfully, maybe talking to Dick Cavett or somebody, said, you know, you only think that I'm black because you think you're white. It was just a lovely little moment. Of, of course, you're not just white. But of course, whiteness is a currency, is a power, is a flex, and it has been a form of terror in the world for centuries. So I want to hold on to white supremacy, but I want to put the word myth in there. I want to put the word whiteness in there and note that, that we have work to do to see how whiteness functions. But if our impulse is to say, I'm not racist, is 
talk to someone. And, and I do have a helpful anecdote here. The Reverend James Lawson, who was a contemporary of Martin Luther King Jr., arguably a leader within the civil rights movement, the nonviolent movement of America, right up there with King. But Lawson is still alive. And he taught a class at Vanderbilt that I took. And he brought up the name Howard Thurman, who is an author. He wrote Jesus and the Disinherited. And he's a very well-known author that formed King's thinking. And he said, who out there has heard of Howard Thurman? And he was addressing a predominantly white classroom. Nobody had heard of Howard Thurman. King, I should say, carried a copy of Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited throughout his life. So Lawson says, how many of you have heard of Howard Thurman? And no one raised their hand. And then Lawson kind of reared back and said, I'm going to say something kind of nasty. And he said, you know why you haven't heard of Howard Thurman? You haven't heard of Howard Thurman because you're racist. Hmm. And I then had to think through, am I going to pick up what he's laying down? Or am I going to go storming out because a 70-something-year-old Black civil rights icon told me that the fact that I don't know about Howard Thurman is reflective of my own whiteness. That's all. It doesn't have to be a knockdown drag out. It can be. So I, I think denying one's racism, especially when in an exchange, a person of color has helped you identify a racist pattern, a racist idea. It's helpful, too, because I knew that Reverend Lawson liked me. We had had some nice exchanges. Hmm. So I wasn't stupefied by him identifying the racism that has had hold of my thinking. It is so hard to have a moral realization while feeling shut down. And I know a lot of people feel shut down, but we have to look hard at what's being done to our neighbors of color, the way they're being terrorized and killed and tortured and imprisoned and incarcerated. We have to look hard at that data without defensiveness if we're going to be able to repent. And, and again, I want to say it, it feels like a poke, but repentance isn't, repentance isn't just the first word of the good news. Repentance is good news. It is an easier yoke than the heavier yoke mm. of self-legitimation mm. and defensiveness. Mm. So I understand the defensiveness. I've been there. I am there even today. But, but we need to not harden our own hearts to the righteousness being made available to us. Mm. You, you said something earlier. You said, sit down and talk to more black people. And I don't think you meant that in a flippant way. What I hear when you say that is it's impossible or next to impossible to change your bias, to change your way of thinking, to change your hardened memory patterns. If you continue to stay in and amongst the same tribe you've always been in and refuse to, to go outside that tribe in any way. And, and it, I can have a lot of empathy because I've been there and I talk to so many friends, my white friends who say, I don't, why do you have to always make it about race? This isn't, I'm not racist. The more that black people talk about race, the more divisive they're making it. And, and, and all I can say to that is when, 
if you haven't spoken to and understood the story uh, of a person of color, it's really easy to say, don't make it about race when race has never been an issue for you. Yeah. Race has never been an issue for me. It's probably never been an issue for you in any way, meaning I haven't been abused physically, emotionally, psychologically because of the color of my skin. I haven't been stopped. I haven't been beaten. I haven't been looked at. I haven't been told to get out of a neighborhood. I haven't been denied service. All of the things that almost every black person in this country will tell you at some time in their lives, they have experienced that simply because of the color of their skin. So for me as a white person to say, oh, don't make it about race, it, that, that, that's really blind on my part to see. But there's a bigger thing that I always question that I wanted to hear your perspective on this. How is it that we can observe millions of people in this country protesting, mourning, lamenting, and yet we can just wholesale discount it and say, oh, let me show you, yeah, but let me show you this black conservative female that is saying the yeah. same thing I am. This is who I'm listening to. So what what is it about us that we can observe millions of people saying something and have no empathy and, and delegitimize what they're saying? How is that possible? Well, I think that we view reports as I think we consume news product mm. that is tailored to fit our biases. If Fox News or MSNBC found out that showing footage of a dog park 24 hours, like dogs wandering around doing things, if that would generate ad revenue, that's what we would get. Maybe from any number of channels, networks, mm -hmm. you know, sure. they give us what sells. And if a split screen of two people yelling at each other about a tweet or breaking news is what generates ad revenue, that's what wins. In the same way that I, I think of Letterman and Lena mostly, but I guess it's Colbert and Fallon now, they are locked. Oh, and Jimmy Kimmel. They're locked in competition. How many interesting, not it. They are vying for attention. We live in an attention-driven economy and a reaction-driven economy. So we don't get responses unless we read books or maybe listen to long interviews on the radio or podcasts. You know, mm -hmm. these are responses, but reaction sells units. Reaction profits, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. And so... I mean, it happens that maybe since we last spoke, this would have been in June, July, one of the largest mass gatherings in Nashville ever, 10,000 people led by teenagers in Nashville, protested police violence. Lamar Alexander might have said something, but Marsha Blackburn and Bill Lee said nothing mm. about the fact that 10,000 Tennesseans marched through Nashville protesting police violence against black people. If our governor and one of our senators can get away with saying nothing, or actually they did say something in the sense that both of them referred to it as a ruckus or referred to it as anarchists, troublemakers, that kind of thing. 
So that reactive response to real news is its own commodity and is its own little passing of the peace. Those were a bunch of leftists, right? Look at what the leftists are doing. So we have reality packaged for us by news networks. I almost want to say news product networks. And to demand more analysis or to even attempt analysis yourself in the presence of those who are in the grip of weaponized disinformation can court conflict. And we are conflict avoidant. So to even acknowledge the George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, is to, is to stick your, your neck out among people. And we, we are conflict averse. We don't like to get tagged as liberal or problematic. We might want to put a Black Lives Matter sign in our yard, but we want peace with our neighbors in our predominantly white neighborhoods. I have a friend <laughs> who in Green Hills who put a Black Lives Matter sign up in their yard and it was stolen. And then they put up another sign that said our first Black Lives Matter sign was stolen. And it kind of became this thing. It was sort of funny, but it was also kind of performance art, mm. kind of calling attention to everyone that there are those who, who take real issue with this. And you can throw in words like Antifa, that kind of thing. These are quick little trigger words. And I would say that a lot of folks who regularly say leftists are Antifa, when you say that enough, people eventually decide, okay, we're not going to get into it with them. We're not going to talk about it. But that is the challenge, is to try to cultivate empathy within ourselves and to communicate that empathy. And, and of course, with empathy comes advocacy. I, I want to mention, too, that if sitting down, sometimes sitting down with a person of color to discuss these things is demanding more of their time than is fair to them. So I, I think that the start, and we, my family and I have been doing this a little bit, I've noticed anti-racist book clubs proliferating throughout Middle Tennessee, where white people read, you know, any number of folks. There, there's so many books out there now, but Ibram Kendi is kind of a big one, a starting point. You don't have to, or Jamar Tisby, as you mentioned. Sometimes the great start is leaving your Black friends out of it and reading Jamar Tisby with anybody that you can get to sit down with you, The Color of Compromise, and kind of take it from there. And of course, there's a lot of folks who have never read a book written by a black person. Mm. And there can be some shame in that, but just push on past it and start reading it and talking to people and quoting them. I, I want to, I feel like I've gone on for a bit, but I want to note really quickly that in January of 2017, the bishops of the AME church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, January of 2017, issued a public statement denouncing the demonic acts of the Trump administration. That was within month one of our, the four years of Trump. A lot of hand-wringing from famous white evangelicals about Trump, but hardly anybody saying, let's start here with what our sisters and brothers in the African Methodist Episcopal Church are telling us. Let's mm. believe them. Or let's at least talk about it. And I think there, there's a move where people are not inclined to defer 
to anyone other than official people. I'm wanting to note a pattern as well, because in after Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, Billy Graham was asked, what do you think of that speech? And Billy Graham said, I think he's right. Hmm. Children in Birmingham will, black and white children in Birmingham will join hands when Christ returns. It's like, come on, Billy Graham. Now, he, he backed away from a lot of that, but that little move where he would not defer to a fellow pastor mm. on any issue, he refused to defer to Martin Luther King Jr., who maybe knew something more about racism than he did. Mm. And I think we've seen that move from high-profile professional God talkers, white ones, ever since. And of course, that's that precedes my birth. And we've got, I mean, with folks like Austin Channing and Jamar Tisby, it isn't just a matter of inviting them to come speak. It's a matter of reading the books with people who aren't inclined to read those things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, dealing with the white supremacist problem as white people <laughs> first before we continue to make it someone else's problem. That's really good. Thank you for for giving that information. I want to back up a little bit back to your your point about families, parents, significant others turning into something that they weren't quite. You in one of your recent blogs you you quoted Philip K Dick, the science fiction author, and he says this, disinformation is noise driving out signal, but it is noise posing as signals so you do not even recognize it as noise. If you float enough disinformation into circulation, you will totally abolish everyone's contact with reality, probably your own included. And I'm sure that was written back in the 60s, 70s, whenever he may have written that. Yep. But if you float enough noise out into circulation, you will totally abolish everyone's contact with reality, probably your own included. I'm a student of, of psychology so much so that I'm, I have gone back to school myself. And one of the things that I find fascinating, I'm also a student of, of digital media and marketing. I've been in this space as a career for over 20 years. One of the things I, I find uh, fascinating with this and disheartening at the same time, but simply observing as a student is there's something bigger and deeper going on. When Philip K. Dick wrote this, he's thinking about disinformation as it pertains to potentially news, media, politics, etc. But what we have, we have observed the past four or five years is a gradual increase of disinformation that culminated, I I believe, in January 6th. That's what I personally believe. But I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with that I know personally, that I am in contact regularly who have said, I don't have a relationship with my parents anymore. I can't talk to my brother-in-law anymore. We can't go eat. We can't go there for the holidays because they, he, she, They've been so radicalized that they their personalities have changed. They've become mean. They've become very virulent around politics and they can't get off of it. I can't let my I can't 
let my kids stay with their grandparents because they're constantly asking them if they've gotten vaccinated. They're asking me constantly who I voted for. On and on it goes. Uh So the point I'm getting to here, David, is this goes beyond simple disinformation, but it's also affecting physiological personalities, ways of of thinking and being and existing. So I asked a, a psychologist friend of mine, I said, if you were to pull back, zoom back, and let's say there was an alien that came down from another planet and they didn't know what was going on on this planet. And they were to ask you as a psychologist, an authority on the human psyche and behavior, what's wrong with these people? Not knowing any of the background, what would you say? And she had an interesting response. She said, I would tell them that these people have been traumatized and bullied. And I thought that was an interesting response because uh, as more and more I study it and look at it, what has happened is gone beyond disinformation to trauma, the way that a person responds to being traumatized, being bullied, being abused by someone. It's the same type of behavior. It's a defending of the abuser. It's Uh a personality change. It's an insensitivity to others' feelings. Again, I know I've just thrown a lot out at Mm. you, but I'd I'd love to hear from your perspectives as you think about this culturally, even from a religious perspective. Mm. What do you you hear when I say those things? I, I agree with everything that you and your friends. I have a little adage, the toxic personality. Well, am I going to say the? I want to say that we're all, we all have toxicity within us. We're all dealing with it. We're all dealing with trauma. And here's the proverb. A toxic personality is a traumatized personality. That isn't to say that everybody's taken a punch in the face or that everybody's been physically assaulted in any way, but we feel bullied. It, I often thought that in electing Donald Trump, we elected the most visibly insecure celebrity in America, where a candid, any candid word was a threat to his sense of self. Anyone else getting a laugh, anyone else speaking into the microphone. But of course, there's a sense in which Donald Trump or the, the host body of the spirit that was Trump was almost like an accidental exorcist. And I'm borrowing that from the artist Todd Green, because when I visualize his face, Donald Trump's face, I feel spirits, reactions, rage coming out of people. Like you look at the picture, you see what you see. Mm. You see, perhaps, the abusive patriarch in your own life. Mm. So something got has been normalized. And I haven't exactly written about this, but I've thought about it. As it was looking like he might win, I said, you know, it isn't any one person. Trump didn't start the fire. It's the habitual legitimation of the abusive man in a million households across the land. Mm. Uncles, brothers, coaches, CEOs, who know that if they flick that switch of rage, that they can get things done. 
They can get people fired. They can get investigations shut down. So one beautiful thing about Trump not being in office is we don't have him in our newsfeed as we deal with other forms of Trumpism in every area of public life, churches, camps, schools, companies, all of that. And we feel bullied in a union kind of way. You can maybe feel sin for me, but you have to, and I guess I'm mostly speaking as a, as a man, you have to slay the dragon. You have to bring down visually the patriarch in your life in order to think freely. And of course, it can be, it can be a matriarch. It can be any number of people. But authoritarianism isn't one person being a bully. Authoritarianism, I mean, it can be that, but the authoritarian mind is not the mind of a Hitler or a Stalin. The authoritarian mind is the mind that would prefer that someone else answer ultimate questions, (laughs) that someone else take the responsibility of deciding who the enemy is. Mm. And I think the authoritarian mind is is with us, has always been with us, and it is brought down whenever we give permission, give ourselves and others permission to really think and to think twice, to ask questions. I'm of the mind that true education, which sometimes happens in institutions of education, but true education is the overcoming of deferential fear Mm, within myself and with others. And I do all of the folks who might be identified as MAGA in my own life, I do think of them as perpetually bullied people, Mm. even as people who, as it turns out, sometimes find it difficult to sit still when someone else is holding forth or telling a story, and who sometimes find it difficult to sit still if you want to read a poem out loud to them. But the amount of time that it takes to listen to a poem or to listen to someone, now we're kind of talking therapeutic settings in a way. They avoid therapeutic settings sometimes, but it isn't an avoidance of other people so much as it's an avoidance of their own hurt Mm. and acknowledgement of their own hurt. So I think Mm. that's absolutely right. And it's it's a helpful word to note. And this is the tragedy when I talk to my former students, they're realizing that their parents who've known them their whole lives are respecting, you know, Franklin Graham or Ben Shapiro or Rush Limbaugh's opinion over theirs. That's Mm. what really hurts. It's like, mom, dad, don't you know that I've thought about God, (laughs) that I've thought about what my own children need? And Mm. it's a slow, slow, difficult work. And yeah, and it's not going to be the healing. The path to healing is, is always, but so much won't get resolved within our lifetime in terms of the the hurt and the pain and the disinformation. Yeah, for sure. Let's shift gears a little bit, David. And we were texting back and forth a little bit preparing for this podcast. And you dropped a term on me that I can't wait to talk about. You said you were working on a couple of things, but one that jumped out at me was you've been thinking about robot soft exorcism. Yes. What, what in the world is robot soft exorcism? 
Okay, this, these words appeared to me as I was trying to get to the bottom of a story that will feel like ancient history to many of you, I believe. Okay, so Sarah Huckabee Sanders was the press secretary of uh, the Trump administration. And a lot of stuff got legislated. You will recall children in cages, a ban on trans people in the military, just all kinds of stuff, immigration, ICE, things that are still with us, I should say, within the Biden administration. But at the height of that, she went into a restaurant called the Red Hen, a small restaurant. And the people working in the Red Hen, some of whom were gay or some of whom knew people who were undocumented, were not comfortable with Sarah Huckabee Sanders being in the restaurant because of the fact of her, her own commitment to the policies of the Trump administration as the press secretary. So the manager of the Red Hen took Sarah Huckabee Sanders aside after they had had appetizers and said, I want to be respectful, but in this establishment, there are employees who do not feel comfortable with you being in this restaurant. The appetizers are on us, but we're going to ask you to leave. According to the owner manager, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, I understand and left. But within 24 hours, Sarah Huckabee Sanders took to Twitter, named the Red Hen, and thereby incited protest, violence, all of that. The words cancel culture were out there at this point, but. Sarah Huckabee Sanders did a, th did a gracious thing, I should say, initially, but then made a move that was kind of odd. The power differential between the press secretary to the executive branch of the United States and a small business owner struck me. So I had a visual, and it was this. Sarah Huckabee Sanders lives inside a giant robe, or did, a giant robot called the Trump administration, or we could say a giant robot just called the executive branch. She has power within that giant robot. She climbed out of the robot to go to a restaurant with her friends and somebody spoke their mind to her and asked her to leave and everything was good. But then Sarah Huckabee Sanders climbed back into the robot and pressed a button where the power differential is different. Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how to move forward with that kind of toxicity and that kind of terror is this. If I were in a robot, Belmont University, the United States of America, Apple, Google, whatever it might be. If I were in a robot, which abused people, which if it turned out, was crushing lives, crushing others, doing damage. I think that I would appreciate it if a human being outside the robot saw me in the eye socket and waved to me and said, there is life outside that robot. Hmm. Step out of the robot and talk to me, your fellow creature, before you do any more damage. Hmm. Robot soft <laughs> exorcism is my way of naming that exchange. Mm. And while it started with the red hen, I see it everywhere now. 
Mm. And I see it in the civil rights movement. And I saw it myself down at Legislative Plaza when Tennessee state highway troopers were ordered to approach nonviolent protesters unmasked during a pandemic, as far as we can tell. And we, the nonviolent protesters, started asking those troopers to wear masks. It's like, yes, you've been given your orders. Yes, Governor Bill Lee wants to see something happen here, as far as we can tell. But would you please wear a mask? Because ultimately, you don't work for Governor Lee. You work for us. And they started wearing masks. There was that move. Mm -hmm. I also watched nonviolent protesters urge the troopers to give up their jobs right then and there. Lay the badge down. Put your gun down. And I heard protesters say, we'll start a GoFundMe page for you if this ends up being a problem financially. So there's no robots on the scene, but mm. the robot image is a way of naming the power constellations that make our lives possible. Mm. And, and it, of course, I can't believe I didn't say this at the beginning. I pick up all of this from the Apostle Paul, mm. who said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the principalities and powers, the organizations, the corporations, the governments, all of that. That's what we're wrestling against. And that's why on this bottled water thing in Georgia, Delta and Coca-Cola, two big robots had to change their tune and say, we're against this voter suppression legislation. Mm. There was an appeal by flesh and blood to the flesh and blood within those robots to no longer be complicit in criminalizing handing a bottle of water to a thirsty person. So we see robot soft exorcism played out on the granular level in every news cycle. Mm. And with robot soft exorcism, I mean, it's a crazy, funny, silly way of describing it, but it is describing a real thing, namely human beings inviting other human beings to disarm, mm. to give up the armored self that is a position in a company or an army or in government and be a human being. And, and it happens that this is maybe a perhaps uniquely American idea, because in America, we are a nation of equals. Mm. And the fact that Marco Rubio or Franklin Graham are famous doesn't mean that I as a less famous person, don't have the right to put questions to them on Twitter. So that nation of equals in a kind of Walt Whitman kind of way, I, I try to carry that into all my interactions, which is why I regularly address Bruce Springsteen and Michael W. Smith and Governor Bill Lee on Twitter, because it's a way of inviting them to be human beings among human beings, despite mm. the robots. Mm. And most of us live in more than one robot, by the way. Yes, for sure. Whether it be a corporation, a religious institution, or or even our own our own concept of ourselves that we get stuck in, right? It's That's like, right. Our brand. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Our own brand, our own personal brand. That's really good. Thanks for explaining that robot soft exorcism. I, I'm expecting a book that has some um, science fiction overtones in, in it. This um, is the Maybe hope. some allegory. Uh, you also said that you're working on a book uh, about you too. What's that about? 
Well, I have loved you too, if it's appropriate to say that I love people that I don't know personally. How I went from a uh, 16-year-old Tennessean in a dance photo with a Confederate flag behind me <laughs> from my high school to wherever it is I am now had a lot to do with 80s rock and MTV. You two are the band that are still going in an insufferable way <laughs> for sub. But to me, they have never stopped being a kind of surrealist punk rock collective who are pioneers of moral seriousness. To my embarrassment, I didn't know who Martin Luther King Jr. was when I was in eighth grade. But then there's pride in the name of love. And it's like, oh, that's Me Memphis? What? Like they kind of showed me my own history. They showed me South African history. They showed me Billie Holiday and Bob Dylan, and Johnny Cash on the Zeropa album. They, they have been this, they're millionaires, which is awkward, but they are also social activists. They're like pop Woody Guthrie, Allen Ginsberg type figures. And it's easy to confuse their success and their agedness for their whole selves. And so the book is called Explain All These Controls, You Two and the Inner America. And I'm exploring their relationship, not just with American culture, but with American presidents. And, and I think that history will show that Bono's willingness to lose his own credibility in a friendship with George W. Bush saved millions of lives on the African mm. continent. For sure. And I want to celebrate that. But there is also critique. It's not that every move they've made has been completely genius, but there is nothing like you, too. Yeah. And, and my argument is that they are ultimately a gift of spirit to the human species, the way Shakespeare or William Blake or Toni Morrison are. So it's kind of paying off a debt in a way, because my own theory of culture, my own insistence that you can't love God without loving human beings. I think that you two taught me that. And uh, so it's part memoir, but also chronicling something that I sometimes think I'm one of the only people who's paid a lot of attention to. Yeah, no, you're not. You and I are, are of similar age and generation, and they were a big influence on my life. And the more that you talk and I think about it, it it really was, and it continues to be, that thread that cha always was challenging my worldview, but yet not in a confrontive, harsh way, mm -hmm. but in a very reasoned and beautiful artistic way. And I think that's the best way because songs, melodies, concepts are able to seep in and stay with you a long time that almost any other form of, of communication can't do necessarily. That's right. So that's really good. What else? What else are you working on? Well, I teach a religion and science fiction class, and this has been a great time to be doing that. I mentioned too, that I'm going to revise Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious and put it out with a different publisher, Broadleaf, this time. And I'm excited about that. And I, I defined religion as controlling story in the first edition. I now define religion as perceived necessity mm. as a way of letting religion name state killing, drone strikes, all, all kinds of things. And a book to come after those. So the YouTube book, the revised version of Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, and another book called The Context of Love is the World with Broadleaf, 
which will probably incorporate a lot of this robot soft exorcism stuff and kind of note, especially in the digital age, that our virtues, our values have nowhere else to happen but in our own activity, our relationships. So it's kind of a call to embodiment mm-hmm. in an increasingly remote world. Uh, for, for, in, the, in that sense, it kind of ties into the U2 thing, because explain all these controls is almost like a prayer of what do I do with these tools like Twitter, like my iPhone? How do I dwell more knowingly in my own life, even as so much content is mediated in ways that has us estranged from our own sense of self. So that's another one on the horizon called The Context of Love is the World, which is a Wendell Berry quote. Oh, wow. That's awesome. How can people uh, connect with you, learn more about, I know you have a blog on on Substack, is it? Yeah, if you just Google David Dark Substack, it'll take you over to Dark Matters and Twitter. I don't know that I recommend Twitter to most, but it is like paper, except more so. Constantly updated. I, I pull on it because I can say things and then I can leave and then I come back and people have asked me questions about what I just said. And that can generate paragraphs, which can generate articles, which can generate books. So Twitter and Substack are the big ones. Hmm. That's good. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time. Really, really appreciate it. I know it's a busy day and I know it's a Friday, so I'm going to let you get back to your family, your work or whatever you're going to get back to. But thank you so much and I hope to do it again soon. I do too. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. We'll talk to you soon. 